Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My mother has four sisters. Even saying that seems wrong. I consult my own sister. How many sisters does our mother have? We estimate it's somewhere between 10 and 15. Then we begin to list them. Rita, Mary. We pause. There must be two Marys? No. We decide after a short discussion, there's only one Mary. Betty, Anne. We think, that's it? We've only got to four. That can't be right. Twelve seems like a more satisfying number of sisters. We start again. There's finally, and conclusively, only four. In Donald Antrim's strange novel, The Hundred Brothers... The opening sentence lists the names of all the brothers, all 100 of them. It's a weaving, endless, almost multiplying sentence. That's what I thought it would be like to name all of my mother's sisters. I thought we would be left confused as to how they all fit in their house growing up. I thought, at the very least, there would be enough for a camogie team, a game my mother and her sisters used to play. But no, there's really only four, a totally unexceptional number. The reason it feels like more... It's, I think, the way I used to see my aunties as a child, pulling their cars haphazardly into our driveways, wearing glamorous clothes and high heels, always carrying with them an air of drama, the faint whiff of the telenovela. Another reason I think there is more is because of the telephone. It would be impossible to estimate the amount of time my mother has spent on the phone to her sisters, speaking in her low, secretive voice, scrutinising information and gossip, One of the earliest memories of my life is hearing the phrase, I'm on the phone. It's a phrase now lodged concretely in my mind, a phrase that carries with it its own specific set of instructions. Don't dare come in, I'm doing something you're not privy to. Now there's no real need to announce you're on the phone. We're all on our phones all the time. But back then, my mother sat against the wall, on a dining room chair, the telephone cord wriggling in her lap as she giggled delightedly at whatever one of her sisters was saying now. I'd never considered until recently what a release those phone calls must have been for my mother. She worked in an office when I was growing up where she would have been required to have a professional demeanour, be careful what she said around her boss and colleagues, to laugh at their jokes regardless of whether or not she found them funny, to exude refinement, to prove herself capable. When she came home, she had a husband and two young daughters to whom she must have felt a sense of her personal responsibility, to be nice, to be instructive, to show us how to move through the world as women. What a relief those phone calls must have been. What a momentary liberation. They provided her an opportunity to be funny, to be mean and petty if she felt like it, to show a version of herself that we never saw. The young woman who must have once stayed up all night with her sisters, Gideon Manick, Talking, talking, talking. On the American shows I watched as a girl, someone was always picking up the other phone, the extension, as they called it, an impossible item and wild luxury in a rural 90s Irish childhood, and finding out things they shouldn't have. So many of the paper-thin plots in these soaps relied on the existence of the phone extension. Without the phone extension, these shows might not have existed at all. I couldn't imagine picking up another line and listening to my mother's most intimate conversations. Even overhearing one side felt too confidential. Of course, they would have discussed their irritations, their daily disappointments. 
But how many deaths, losses and failures had they guided each other through? And what about those private impulses you sometimes get? A desire to abscond, quit your job, leave your life behind? All those things you might never do but can confess to wanting to over a forgiving phone line. Although the American allure of the extension was strong, I couldn't have ever listened to that and not felt like I was committing a betrayal. It's well publicised that young people don't like talking on the phone now, that they'll go to any lengths to avoid a call. I feel differently. I find video chat too exposing, my hands and facial expressions give too much away. I prefer the secrecy of the phone, where I'm just a voice and I can forget about my body and face. I know it's a trait I've inherited. Years ago, when I was studying film in college, my class watched a Pedro Almodovar film, which featured an array of comic aunties playfully giving advice and offering instruction. Like all Almodovar films, this one went down a mysterious route. However, it wasn't the lack of straight realism one of my classmates took issue with. It was the aunties. After a number of scenes of outlandish fantasy, this was the film's greatest problem as he saw it. They were too vibrant, he said. They were too ridiculous. They were too involved. They quite simply talked too much. I had to disagree with this. But I remember saying, that's what it's really like. Night nurse required, must be young and pretty. You could be forgiven for thinking that this sounds like the opening to a racy, Mills and Boone-style hospital romance or the next instalment of the Fifty Shades series. In fact, it's the wording of an advertisement that was placed with a nursing agency in Nice in September 1942, one which eventually led to a moving friendship and a remarkable marriage of art and religion. The person who placed the advertisement was the painter, Henri Matisse, then aged 72 and recovering from a major operation. The person who responded to it was Monique Bourgeois. If Matisse was pushing his luck with the wording of the ad, then so too was Monique in replying. By her own admission, she fulfilled only one of the three criteria in his request for a young and pretty nurse. She was young, just 21 years of age. Illness had forced her to interrupt her nursing studies, so she couldn't really call herself a nurse. And as for her looks, her family had always told her that she was plain, burdened with a large nose and unattractive mouth. However, she needed work, and in any case, it was only for two weeks, while Matisse's regular nurse was on holidays. Advised by the lady in the agency to be vague about her qualifications, Monique went to the artist's spacious apartment for an interview and was hired immediately. Her first night looking after Matisse was uneventful. Her patient talked in his sleep and woke frequently because of pains in his legs. She took in her surroundings and examined the artwork that lined the walls. She wasn't impressed. 
But over the following days, a friendship began to develop, despite the more than 50 years that separated them in age. Matisse enjoyed teasing her. She enjoyed being teased. He spoke to her openly about his children and about his wife, from whom he was estranged. She admitted she didn't care much for his paintings. He was amused by her honesty. In conversation, he was courteous, always remembering to apologise for any profanities. During his occasional bouts of self-pity, she reminded him bluntly that he was lucky to be able to afford a secretary, a cook, a day nurse and a night nurse. At the end of the two-week stint, the regular nurse resumed her duties. Matisse asked Monique for her phone number in case I might need you some night if my nurse were ill. He phoned her shortly afterwards to ask her to pose for him. She accepted, and over a period of a few months, Matisse produced four paintings of Monique, as well as drawings in charcoal and pen and ink. Their friendship deepened during the early part of 1943. Monique was then living in accommodation run by the Dominican nuns in Vence, about 15 miles inland. Matisse decided to rent a villa across the road from the convent, just in case the Germans decided to bomb Nice, he explained. Monique spent two months nursing him and posing for him. However, she had a secret. One day, she confided in Matisse's secretary that she was considering becoming a nun. Don't tell the boss, the secretary said. I'll decide when to break it to him. Just tell him you're going away to find work. Monique bade farewell to Matisse, claiming that she had found a job near Toulouse. An hour later, he phoned her, distraught. His assistant had told him the truth. He was devastated and tried to persuade her to stay. She promised that she would never forget him and that she would pray for him. Three years later, Monique returned to the Dominican convent in Vence as Sister Jacques-Marie and renewed her friendship with Matisse. One night, while at the sickbed of an elderly sister, she felt overcome by a desire to produce a drawing of a stained glass window. She felt it might be suitable for a chapel the nuns had wanted to build for many years, and she showed it to Matisse. I'll build your chapel, he told her, and I'll look after the stained glass windows. And so, in the spring of 1948, the 78-year-old artist, an atheist since his late teens, began four years of physically demanding work on the chapel. The preparatory sketches for the murals required Matisse to clamber on top of makeshift platforms, ignoring dizziness and stomach cramps. Despite his failing health, he insisted on designing every detail. Altar, stained glass windows, candlesticks, stations of the cross, even the vestments to be worn during Mass. The Chapel of the Rosary, a luminous and intimate place of worship overlooking the pretty town of Vence, was consecrated in June 1951. Matisse wrote to the local bishop to apologise for being unable to attend the ceremony because of ill health, adding, This chapel has taken four years of exclusive and painstaking effort and is the culmination of my whole working life. I consider it, despite its imperfections, my masterpiece. It's the result of a life devoted to the search for truth.
He died three years later. Sister Jacques-Marie, Monique Bourgeois, his nurse, muse, and the friend for whom he confessed he had a tenderness that has no need for words, was not granted permission to attend his funeral. Knocko or Simon or Pino had a plastic bag of subway dangling down by his bare leg, letting the warmth of it dab at his skin as it swung towards and away from him. The train was getting going in the early morning sun. We were somewhere between Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Hungary, Croatia. We were sweaty and underwashed, tired, muggy, luxuriating in our own filth. Our clothes were damp and rotting with sweat, bundled up in our rucksacks. There was too little water between the six of us, Someone was wearing the same t-shirt for the third day in a row. There had been an argument about where to go next, about what city was the right one to go to. The train shook and shook as I thought, I hate every person in this booth. I told them I was going to sit somewhere else on the train and read. Ignoring the bits of half glances to each other, I left, going down the other end of the train to find an empty booth. I've been utilising this tactic more and more as we've gone into the later weeks of our trip. Generally, I appreciate a certain amount of time to myself and like to avoid people if I'm in bad form. This was not part of the group ethos, which was that we should always, as much as possible, stick together. People would get snippy with each other, exasperated, and yet remain in the same room, arguing through their moods. I preferred to bail and come back when tempers had calmed. When I stepped off the train at our destination, the other lads were already walking away hurriedly down the platform. When I caught up to them, they maintained a sharp silence. Were they that offended that I'd left, preferring to spend a two-hour train journey by myself? I followed, confused for a bit, then sensed that something else had happened in my absence. Later on, I learned exactly what had happened. After I'd left our compartment, a beautiful young Australian woman had slid open the rattling carriage door, blonde and fresh and cool. They looked up at her. Sorry, guys, she'd said in unmistakable Australian wide-mouthed vowels. Do you mind if I take that seat? Pointing at the seat I'd just vacated. The answer was, of course, no. They could barely, barely believe their luck. She stowed her rucksack beside their bags and the rack above them and swung into the empty seat beside the window. They pretended not to look at her. She was well used to the situation, and instead of waiting to see which one of them would talk at her first, find her name, find where her hostel was, make contact, establish rapport, get contact info. She just breezed into it. So where are you guys from? She asked. How long have you been on the road? Where are you going next? They answered some way or how in an incredibly friendly and inclusive manner. But she was a mirage. She wasn't real. A gorgeous woman didn't just slide into your life, occupying the seat some long-forgotten ginger had left and start making small talk. Usually there were more hurdles to get over, icy friends, protective males, her own standards. This didn't quite just happen, not like this. 
There was a lull in the conversation as each young man struggled to plot their strategy ahead. Noting the brief silence, the Australian girl turned her head and looked out the window. Then she stood up. Sorry, guys, she said. I can't do this. She took her rucksack down from the rack. It's not personal, she said. It's just... Guys, it stinks in here. She left, sliding the door firmly shut after her. They watched her go, away off down the carriage to find another compartment that didn't reek of reused socks. Wet towel, warm Subway sandwich, too much links, not enough soap, sweaty t-shirts, cigarettes, old burps, new farts, beer breath, hair grease, garlic cheesy chips, pull my finger, mayonnaise, kebabs, kebabs, kebabs. When I rejoined them on the train platform, a long, hard silence was on the group. They checked into the hostel, brought the bags to their bunks, and then the sound of water gushing in the shower rooms. It would be a long while before they told me about their humiliation, even longer still before they recovered. There's that image you have of yourself when young and on the move, well-travelled, soiled but in a charming way. Martin Sheen in Badlands, old t-shirt, young body, grubby but romantic. Then there's the reality. A carriage full of smelly, smelly young men scaring off a gorgeous young backpacker. And that, more or less, is why I travel alone. Outside another yellow moon There's ponds to hold in the night time, yes I climb to the window and down to the street I'm shining like a new dime Downtown trends of food It started with a game of chasing, an indoor game of chasing. It ended in disaster. Chasing is one of mine and my dog's favourite things, and it begins with me taking off without warning through interconnecting rooms. If I get a head start on him, I can hide behind a door so that he arrives into the room and stops dead. And I can see him thinking, oh, she's disappeared, she's vanished. This amuses me greatly. So off I took at high speed through the living room, which was in darkness as I'd forgotten to open the curtains that morning. I sped towards the double doors into the adjoining room, completely unaware of a large footstool in my path, which proved an effective launch pad, flinging me up into the air and through the doors where I landed heavily on my shoulder. There was a lot of screaming, some crying and a very baffled dog who could not understand this new turn our game had taken. I lay on the floor, getting covered in slobbery kisses, and I knew I had done some damage. I later found out that I had fractured my right humerus. With the prospect of six weeks out of action, and largely confined to barracks while my arm healed, I decided to commandeer our garage conversion as my personal refuge. During Covid, this room became a dump room. For years before that, it was rented out to third-level students. We had decluttered it before Christmas so that family could stay, but it was still largely without the comforts that make a room a cosy place to be. So I supervised the draping of fairy lights, the hanging of some posters on the walls and the purchase of some plants. 
If I'd had the budget, I'd add the kind of curtains I think the room needs, which are floor length, richly coloured, heavy drapes to seal me in from the outside world as the light fades. As I lounged on the sofa bed, pondering my temporarily reduced life, I realised that I had unintentionally given the room a distinctly 1970s kind of hippie vibe. It certainly doesn't resemble my childhood home, but it does feel kind of familiar. Then I remembered. I seemed to have subconsciously recreated another garage room, a special place where I spent every Saturday morning when I was about nine or ten years old. This garage of my childhood wasn't even converted. It still had the large wooden double doors, but they were hidden behind, yeah, you've guessed it, floor-to-ceiling velvet curtains which may have been deep purple. The floor was still a concrete garage floor, but was covered with large rugs and mats and scattered with beanbags in various colours. There were posters on the walls and batik wall hangings and from the ceiling hung dream catchers and glass wind chimes. It was a dark and cosy hippie heaven and it was presided over by two young actresses who swirled through the space in their long skirts and tie-dyed t-shirts. They were sisters and the garage of their family home was where they taught drama to a bunch of kids every Saturday. Those Saturday mornings were the highlight of my week. I loved the poetry, the improvisation, the fun, but most of all, I loved the safe, magical space they had created on a tiny budget in a suburban garage. It was a quintessentially female space too, full of deep, rich colours and sensual fabrics. The impression that room made on me has been hiding in my subconscious for decades and only surfaced when I had the need to create a space in which I could rest, dream and heal my poor arm. I haven't got the beanbags, but considering how dangerous I have found footstools to be, I think I'll stick with the sofa bed. I'm still saving for the curtains, though. This is a poem that I wrote in tribute to W.B. Yeats's The Song of Wandering Angus. It borrows the last word in every line from his poem. It's titled Wonder Song. Some day, love, go into the wood and cast your sights out far ahead. Look closely for a flash of wand, squint, conjuring of silver thread, elbow emerged of feathered wing, ribs stitched together inside out, a goddess rising from the stream, skin kissed by darting silver trout. Race now across the valley floor, foot sparks that set her heart aflame, lie with her on the mud-drunk floor, and call this creature by her name. Sweet care that swanned into a girl, 
lake drops still heavy in her hair. Dripping over the fields she ran, caroling through the sun-spun air. Some day, love, go out wandering through this folklore, these spirit lands, where whispered tell of tales long gone and fading light colours your hands. Pause there among the foxtail grass, here, fix your wings, they've come undone. And lift your shoulders to the moon and turn your face full to the sun. I have been mesmerised by the utterly strange and wonderful fact that I, out of the billions of years of creation, out of the billions of people born on this earth, am here and now, this country, these short years, that I am, well, me. Of all the possibilities, this place, this age, this flesh, this paltry ego, Humanity, in its time of existing on the planet, has indeed come a long way, though our being, willful, dominant, soulful, is ephemeral. There was a day that stands out from other days, when, shoes and socks off, my feet ploshed cool in the silt mud of a lake bottom. It was a misery of slime and ooze, and a small stone made me cry out in pain. And yet I, a child, wanting to be faithful to my father, got on with it. He was preparing rod and oars as I pushed and ground the heavy, clinker-built rowboat out from the shore into deeper water, where it scraped on sand, then lolled a while as I held tight lest it drift away on the lake water. Father, almost mythic hero to me then, climbed ungracefully in. I followed. There was a settling as I took my place, gratefully, astern, while he took the oars and rowed powerfully, pleased to be away from the office, pleased to be on the water, and in charge. Soon we reached the reeds on the far side of the lake, the prow of the boat shushing in and holding. The high stems, the sedge, the water lilies were still, with only the lake's soft lapping and the surface so calm you could dream of walking on the water. Father waited, savouring. Then he began to fish, the fly-rod long and tapering, the swish of the line the only sound. I was content. I a child, to be with him, big-built man, muscular, adroit and knowledgeable. 
there came, as if out of the stillness, a sudden commotion on the surface, a stirring, and there lifted a swarm of the most delicate, insubstantial flies, grey-white, with veined, lace-curtained wings, ephemeroptera, hundreds of them, thousands, as if each drop of water in the lake had sprouted wings. Mayfly, by Jove, he whispered, excited, rising after years. It was a hatching from the water womb, some flying low over the surface as if with destination, some fluttering in place, confused, and many seemed to flounder on the surface, and then trout everywhere, feasting, rising from the water and splashing back. Mayfly, old as the dinosaur, he said, though the mayfly will still thrive, imago, subimago, nymphs and naiads, years waiting in the bottom silt, and lifting here today to mate and lay their eggs and die. The mighty and the meek, the ephemeral. Many years after that day, he was in hospital and very ill. When the nurses cleared us from his ward for a while, I sat outside, late evening, thousands of tiny gnats whirling about a bright white light. The years have been hurrying by, body drags and the limbs ache. I was picturing Icarus, while his father, Daedalus, flew with reasoned strength. The sun aimed high and fell, fragility of his wings letting him down, his intent making him a hero. The Sibyl, in Virgil's story, cautioned Aeneas to honour the gods, and, terrified, he stood on the threshold of the underworld, resolute to filch one final meeting with his father who had died. Where I was waiting to be called back to the ward, a night bird trilled from the wood beyond me, and I sensed the bats whiz wheeling round and over me. I stood, finding the trees risen to threatening presences, then stooped to touch the earth for its care, for forgiveness. I shivered and was not cold. At the foot of the bed, father was seated in dressing gown and slippers. We, his adult children, hushed around him, as if we were not there. Nothing more to offer. His gaze was inwards, words unwelcome. I sensed the dragging of the weary body, and knew the struggle within him to free the spirit from the gravity and cloy of bone and brain. By now, we had come a long way. He had grown old, and I had moved on from childhood into my own world. His life had been, at times, fraught with troubles. But he had always remained for me a man brimming with life and eager for the wonders of our living, its myriad troubles, its grandeur. Father, beloved, fisherman. I watched those late moments, the pains and sorrows lay as silt clogging the flesh, and he was ending, emptying himself into himself. I could see a great hosting round him, with vast swarms of souls rising, like mayfly lifting towards the world of light. 
I would have said farewell, tried to say I love you, but the years of diffidence between us had held me mute. There is nowhere now, nowhere save in prayer, where I might speak with him. And so I prayed, prayed for a charcoal fire lit on the lake shore to welcome him. On this morning's programme, which was a mix of new and recent archive scripts, we heard Telephone by Nicole Flattery. A tenderness that has no need for words was by Cunnell Hamill. Why I Travel Alone was by Rory Gleeson. The Garage of Dreams by Barbara Scully. Wander Song, a poem by Nidi Zak Arya Ipi. And The Mayfly by John F. Dean. The music was We Are Family by Sister Sledge. Chopin's Prelude No. 23 in F Major, played on piano by Juliana Avdiva. Downtown Train by Tom Waits. Deep Purple by Donnie and Maria Osmond. And The Hazelwood by Brian McGlynn and Anna Mika. And there's a book you might be interested in. It's called Nothing Special. It's a novel by Nicole Flattery and it's been recently published by Bloomsbury. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And if you'd like to listen back to this morning's programme, you can go to the RTE Radio Player or the programme website. It's rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can find out more about this and other arts and culture programmes on our culture website Again, rte.ie forward slash culture. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast places. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.